0: folks, welcome to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon, your host here as we broadcast from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Hey, I want to thank a couple of our local business partners before we get rolling here. Uh, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, uh, my grocery store, and a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper, seven days a week. Not open for in-house in dining yet, but you can order anything by takeout. Again, all three meals, seven days a week. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Noche Jazz and Cabaret, Des Moines' premier location for jazz, and uh, again, not open yet, but soon. But you can also check out their live stream concerts several times a week. That's Noche Jazz and Cabaret. All right, folks, again, welcome to today's program. Ed Fallon with you. We are broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa. Later in the program, Bill Freeze joining us to talk about the dicamba ruling. We'll also hear from Steve Horn about Governor Newsom's troubling decision to issue 36 new fracking permits in California. And we'll talk about the Arizona fire, which is um, bad and early. We'll also talk with Kathy Burns about the age-old question of, of whether bigger is better. Apparently it's not. Size does matter, but smaller might be better when it comes to agriculture. We'll talk with Kathy Burns of Birds and Bees Urban Farm. I think a lot of us are just still trying to sort out what the heck happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma, over the weekend. Uh, forecasts of there being a tremendous um, protest turnout didn't materialize. Of course, the um, the braggadocio of uh, of Trump's campaign manager, uh, you know, on on Twitter, saying that there would be 800,000, nearly a million people turning out. <laughs> You know, I mean, it's it's really possible to be involved with politics for a long time and still make really dumb mistakes. But uh, this guy, I mean, the Trump campaign and Trump himself got taken for an amazing ride. You know, when again, this stuff is this stuff is not something that I can figure out. But somebody figured out using TikTok and I think one other social media platform but they could go ahead and buy tickets. Well, they, again, they weren't. you didn't have to pay. You just had to reserve those tickets. They reserved tickets to the Trump rally. And so many tickets were reserved by people who had no intention of going that, uh, <laughs> that the Trump campaign thought they had this huge crowd planning to show up. I mean, they were already expecting a big crowd. They had a stadium that seats 19,000. They were expecting to fill it and then have an overflow crowd that would, you know, that would... Uh, they would somehow receive a message either electronically through a screen or I think uh, in the end when they realized well, they thought they were going to have this huge, huge crowd, 800,000, nearly a million, they started making plans for an outdoor presentation by President Trump and Vice President Pence uh, to the overflow crowd. Well, as it turns out, the stadium of 19,000 people had about 6,200 in it. And um, Trump is not a happy camper. But Trump has... He has bigger worries, in my opinion, than you know, than, than whether or not he can fill the stadium. And again, Trump's all—I mean, Trump's always been really good about exaggerating, like well, exaggerating everything, um, including the size of his inauguration turnout, uh, bigger than Obama's. You know, well, we all know that wasn't the case. But um, the biggest problem is the same problem that Steve King started having last year, and. I think if if I was Donald Trump, I would be taking a hard look at what happened to Steve King, and I would begin to realize that uh, the power structure within the Republican Party is starting to back away from President Trump, just as the power structure within the U.S. Congress, the Republican caucus within the U.S. Congress, backed away from Steve King. And it wasn't just that Steve King uh, said crazy things about how wonderful white supremacy was. Um. Or that he continued to, you know, insult immigrants and, and lots of other um, minority constituencies. It was that, um, that that Steve King nearly lost. That that's what I mean. I, I know this is a somewhat of a cynical perspective, but I think the Republican Party, and I would actually make the same argument about the Democratic Party. But again, that's a different conversation. There are different angles there. But I would say the Republican Party uh, is much more concerned about winning than about uh, specific ideology. And so even though King was, uh, well, King may not be that out of step with where a lot of folks in the Republican Party stand on issues. He was probably just more honest and open about talking about it. But the, um, the problem was, not that he would say these things or believe these things or vote a particular way, it's that he nearly lost in a district that is overwhelmingly Republican, where in the past, Steve King and other Republicans have won by huge margins. He nearly lost to J.D. That was the That was, in my opinion, the main reason why the Republican Party turned against Steve King and managed to beat him in the primary uh, earlier this month. And I think the Republican Party is starting to think, wow, Uncle Donald, for all of his crazy talk, for all of his bluster, for all the good things he's doing for our corporate sponsors, uh, he's not going to win. They're starting to think that he is in grave danger of losing to Sleepy Joe Biden, as Trump likes to call him, and that's and, and that's that's what's beginning to drive people away from Trump, drive his base away. You know, and again, I would say not just that, but the fact that he is, um, by any objective measure, an awful person. Uh, I mean, he has uh, he has fired or alienated so many people and some of them, you know, most, most notably lately John Bolton coming back to, um, to basically, uh, you know, set the, set the record straight. <laughs> and uh, I mean, Bolton is, um, is not at all loved by the political left. In fact, he's pretty well despised. Uh, and, and as was, or still is maybe, Rex Tillerson, the, the head of Exxon. You know, there aren't too many Democrats uh, that think highly of either of those people. And yet they're both very, very critical of Trump uh, and Bolton, perhaps most damagingly. But, you know, it's not just it's not just Bolton. Um, you know, Jim Mattis, he's a retired Marine general. He was uh, Trump's uh, he was a, he was um, he was a defense secretary. And he is um, he's indicated that uh, you know, he's, he's basically said Trump is making a, quote, mockery of our Constitution, this is a very strong, vocal conservative with, a, with, a, with a impeccable military credentials criticizing Trump. Um, you know, Trump is also finding pushback in the court. So you have the Supreme Court um, ruling against DACA. Uh, <laughs> you, you, uh, yeah, and, um, and, and you have, uh, of course, Trump firing Jeff Berman, the, uh, the federal prosecutor who had uh, investigated Rudy Giuliani, uh, Trump's lawyers. Uh, <laughs> uh, of course, the Trump administration alleged that the firing of Berman was uh, was for other reasons. But come on, we know, and other people know. No, and you know, and Senate Republicans criticized him. You know, when when your own when the, when the power structure within your own base starts turning against you, you've got problems. And I think, I think, I think, that, I think it's happening. And, you know, I would say, I will say this, I, uh, I, uh, I, I, tend, to, I tend to expect things to happen sooner than, than they often do. And maybe that's, maybe that's not just me. Maybe that's a trait I have in common with, uh, with most of humanity. But I really expected Trump's base to begin to turn against him sooner. Like sooner to the point of um, wanting to get him out of there before the midterms even. But, you know, maybe they were content to lose big time in 2018 with the expectation that they might try to fix their problem before the 2020 election. And that may be what we are seeing right now is the Republican power structure trying to, quote, fix their Trump problem before the 2020 election. And um you know, I don't know what's going to happen with that. I, I you know, I've, I've often been, I, I, I been I've I been surprised that Trump has held on to power this long. But, you know, he, um, I mean, I mean the, the, the problem is, of course, how do they, if, if I'm within the Republican power structure and I have to start thinking about how to get him out of there so that we have a chance of winning. And again, I don't think the base is really that troubled by his policies, even by his ridiculous statements, even by the awful things he's done, making fun of of disabled people, his uh, relationships with women, the lawsuits. I mean, I don't think those things don't bother the base as much as the fact that he might lose. And all indications are right now, even though he's running against the guy that Trump calls sleepy Joe Biden, is that he's going to lose. And that troubles the base deeply. And so... I would not be surprised to see them find a way to try to move him out of there and move Pence into that position. That may be that may be a bit fantastical. The the Republican leadership might have to content itself with 4 years of Joe Biden before they try to bring somebody in that they think can regain the presidency for the Republican Party and its corporate sponsors. But um I mean you look at the the list of people, you know, you know inside the Republican base. And within that definition, I include the NFL. (laughs) Sorry, maybe some people aren't going to think that makes any sense, but sure, come on. So the NFL, I mean, Trump loves the NFL, right? He doesn't like baseball anymore because he got booed at a Nationals game last year. But um, the commissioner of the NFL decided that player protests about racial injustice were okay. That did not make Trump happy at all. So also, here's, um, you know, again, Lindsey Graham, no, no flaming liberal, a frequent Trump defender, uh, and Matt Glassman, a, uh, a political scientist at the Georgetown University, is quoted in the New York Times uh, regarding Graham's decision to not support Trump's appointment of a new federal prosecutor. Uh, Glassman said, quote, it's not a random rogue action by Graham. It's a calculated move based on the weakness of the president. And I I agree. I think, you know, and Senator Grassley here in Iowa, uh, kind of hedging his bets on, on some of the president's recent actions, recent decisions. I think you're starting to see the uh, leadership within the party. And again, when I say the leadership, I mean the uh, most prominent U.S. senators, U.S. Congress members, um, party leaders. And of course, behind them, those are, the, those are the, uh, the actors behind them, the real movers and shakers in the Republican Party. Big money. And again, I would make the same criticism of the Democratic Party. Some are the same big money, some different big money. But the big money behind the uh, the curtain that's really working, these strings that move the Republican puppets, don't like what they see. They don't like the fact that Trump could lose, uh, just like they didn't like the fact that King was going to lose. You know, and I would say this, you know, I, I do think that they, you know, as extreme as the Republican Party has become, as, as, uh, as, um, as disgraceful as the corporate money behind them is in terms of its impact on our lives, you know, there are levels that even bother them when it comes to social discourse and civility, and, and both Steve King and Donald Trump have crossed that threshold many times. And that, yeah, I, I would, I'll admit that that disturbs them, but what really disturbs them more than anything is the prospect of losing. King was probably going to lose to J.D. Schulton, so he had to go. Trump is probably going to lose to Joe Biden. So I may be wrong, but I've always thought that the Republican leadership, at some point, if Trump continued on his course, which I don't think he can veer from because that's who he is, I think at some point they've, they've, they're running out of time, but they might have just enough time to figure out how to move him aside, move Pence into the position to be the nominee. Uh, Again, maybe that's far-fetched, but I think the fact that we're seeing all these key Republicans, and not just Republicans, but Republican-leaning organizations like the NFL, uh, (laughs) um, you know, like the Supreme Court, (laughs) when you start seeing them start lining up against President Trump, openly criticizing him, you know, Something maybe a foot, maybe maybe not, but if you if it if it does happen, if uh, if Trump is wussed aside in order to have a nominee that the Republican Party feels can win, i.e., Mike Pence, you can tell folks you heard it here first, or maybe you heard it somewhere else first. I haven't heard anybody else make that proposition, and again, I may be off the wall, but I think there's some credibility to it. All right, thanks, folks. Um, we'll be back in a few minutes on the Fallon Forum again. Um, Bill Freeze joining us. We're going to be talking about the Uh, dicamba ruling and the saga that continues over that dangerous farm pesticide. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the lively cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community.
1: Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual.
0: Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location and stylish ambiance, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, Scott Smith, Tina Haas-Finley, and Nick Leo. Every Wednesday night, you can enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest-running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche also offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. If you haven't been to Noche, you haven't experienced the fullness of Des Moines' cultural revival. If you have, we're sure you'll be back. Noche located on Walnut Street, just south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Again, thanks for joining us today, folks. Ed Fallon, your host here. A quick shout-out to a couple of our local business partners. Thanks to Hawk Restaurant, where 90% of the food served, comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. They're now open for dinner uh, three nights a week, Thursday through Saturday, and you can still order takeout every other day of the week. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been treating all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. That's Story County Veterinary Clinic. again, Welcome back to the program. Uh, Later in the show, uh, we're going to be talking with uh, Steve Horn about Governor Newsom's mysterious decision, well, in my my opinion, mysterious, to issue a whole bunch of fracking permits, even as the fires in the West begin to heat up. We'll also be talking with Kathy Burns with uh, Birds and Bees Urban Farm uh, answering the question, does size matter? And I think she's going to say, yes, it does. Um, Bigger is not always better. But uh, I'd like to uh, welcome to this segment of the program Bill Fries. He's a science policy analyst with the uh, Center for Food Safety. Bill, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on, Ed. And you've been very involved with the, uh, you're very up to speed with the dicamba pesticides ruling, which has been a big deal here in farm country, uh, not just in the Midwest, but in the South and other parts of the country as well, and has gone through Even today as we speak, there have been some developments and uh, just a little bit of background. Yeah, why don't we start with that, Bill? Maybe a little bit of background on why dicamba is something that everybody, regardless of whether you farm for a living or eat for a living, ought to be concerned about.
2: Yeah, well, dicamba is an herbicide or weed killer, and it's been around since the 60s. and It's long been known to be pretty volatile, um, meaning uh, drift-prone and unpredictable. So, you know, it's, it's been used somewhat uh, on corn over the years, but a lot of farmers have stayed away from it because they realize after you spray it, it can, you know, it can drift like most herbicides, but then after you spray it, it can, for days afterwards, it can lift off you know, volatilize and, you know, then drift sometimes over a mile and cause, you know, severe damage to crops. Soybeans also pretty much all fruit and vegetable crops. So it's a really hazardous herbicide. And so it hadn't really, you know, for, I don't know, a couple of decades, it hasn't been used that much because of this hazard. And then Monsanto, which is recently purchased by Bayer, came up with the um, really, you know, brilliant idea of making uh, crops, genetically engineering them to be resistant to this herbicide. And what that's done, you know, starting about 2017, has resulted in a resurgence of use of this hazardous herbicide and spraying much more of it later in the season when it's hotter. And there has just been just... You know, unprecedented injury. Millions of acres of crops over the last three years have been injured, mostly soybeans, but fruits and vegetables. This uh, this herbicide just does not stay where it's put, as yeah. you know some farmers put I mean, it. and you know, it's just caused a, a huge amount of uh, huge amount of harm in in agriculture.
0: I mean, some of the fa- you, some of the farms have been damaged. Some farms have been destroyed. I mean, there's a peach farmer, I believe, in Missouri who reported that, uh, that his, his trees are pretty much decimated. They're not getting, they're, they're, over the course of several years of contamination from dicamba, they pretty much are no longer fruiting. Um, I've read a similar story, I think this one's from northeast Iowa, actually, of a, of a, a, a pepper farmer who, well, I, I heard he what raises normally, what, six to 7,000 peppers in a season. And last year, I think it was last year, he came. He came. He came away with what seven peppers. So you know something's happening, and it's serious. And it's amazing to me that the EPA, in the first place, ever decided that this was a good thing to allow in the market.
2: Yeah, yeah, it is remarkable. And again, the, we have to think about the the problem here. Is it's not just the herbicide; it's the the system, the crop system. We call it the. the you know dicamba crop system because it's the resistant crop right it's been genetically engineered to withstand dicamba and you know think about it herbicides we call them weed killers but <clears throat> they kill plants right and so they can also damage or kill the plant itself and so for many years you couldn't use dicamba on soybeans because soybeans are very very sensitive so it's you know this crop system uh, that has caused the problems and you're you're perfectly right bill bader in southeast missouri just got slammed by uh, dicamba drift repeatedly for three years and you know fortunately just won a major uh court case against monsanto and was awarded altogether 265 million dollars uh, the evidence was so strong that the 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 jury awarded not only damages but also punitive damages um How could EPA approve this? That's that's a really good question. I think the answer is by accepting Monsanto's junk science, which said that there would not be any drift. Uh, You know, just incredible. And I've looked at the science, it's not worth the paper it's written on. And yet, EPA, you know, just accepted it and has pretty much towed. Monsanto's line ever since.
0: And did, he, uh, did EPA accept that uh, that the junk science from Monsanto? Did EPA make that ruling during the President Trump administration or during the Obama administration?
2: Yeah, you know, initially we cha- the <clears throat> the uh, there were special dicamba formulations, right, that were <clears throat> uh, approved just for use on these dicamba-resistant crops, soybeans and cotton. And the first one was. The first formulations were approved at the end of 2016, so for the 2017 season. Um, so, it, yeah, it was in the Trump administration. And although I will say, you know, the, the Office of Pesticide Programs at EPA has never been, uh, hasn't been very progressive for a long time, uh, but I would say even worse under, under Trump.
0: But with dicamba, it's not just a matter of uh, farmers versus the environment. It's farmer versus farmer. I mean, I, I, I want to say that what about two thirds of all soybeans now uh, are, are are the are the genetically modified op- option that uh, that uses di- that requires dicamba, but that you've still got a huge percentage of soybean farmers that are doing something else, and their crops are at risk because of drift from dicamba. So it's it's not just big farmers versus the environment; it's farmers versus farmers.
2: Yes, yeah, that's a really good point. And <clears throat> the court, in its ruling, talked about <clears throat> the social cost of this dicamba use, the dicamba registrations, and and this is actually part of pesticide law. When you when EPA approves a pesticide or reviews a pesticide, they they're supposed to consider environmental economic and social costs as well as you know so-called benefits and you know that that's typically been ignored and the social cost here the court said it right out is this is tearing apart the fabric of rural america we have neighbors you know lifelong neighbors now who are at each other's throats one uses dicamba drifted on the other and it creates enemies you know it's you know in in Arkansas there was even um uh, a dispute over dicamba and one one farmer was shot and died I, I, and and so it's it's really really awful and then yeah. it's also between you know dicamba using farmers and then you know people in rural communities you know who are seeing their trees die there's a tremendous amount of you know tree a sickness and death that we're seeing in Illinois Nebraska and South Dakota and other states so, uh, I think in Iowa too you know it's it's just this stuff is very very potent it doesn't take much at all to cause really serious damage or in some cases as you said actually destroy a vegetable farm
0: so it's it's um, it's not remarkable to me at all that the Ninth Circuit I believe it was the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals but I'm not correct there the yeah the, the, that's, the that's jurisdiction correct. that decided that uh that dicamba uh, should not be used anymore. That, that ruling did not surprise me. I guess the two things that surprised me are, one, that it came in the middle of, um, of growing season. That seemed to be bad timing. That surprised me that they maybe couldn't have got it done earlier, being sensitive to the realities of farm life. But two, the fact that the EPA just basically said, nah, we're going to continue to allow it. Uh, basically, the EPA saying, we're going to ignore the rule of the law, <laughs> the, rule of, the, the, the rule handed down by the courts those two things I mean take a take a shot at both of them bill the the fact that the court case came not till June and that the EPA basically just said well you can keep you can keep applying it despite what the judge says
2: yeah yeah no on the first item I, I agree with you the timing was unfortunate and it you know we would have preferred an earlier decision um, part of it was due to EPA dragging their feet and the the um, process the court process which involves you know producing uh, documents um so you know and they they drag their feet on that and so it, it didn't need to be that late I, well, me, I just i i wonder if they weren't you know thinking that well, yeah it would I was be good for them oh, I,
0: I, that I was going to ask you were they was was the foot dragging intentional knowing that if the ruling didn't come out till after the crops were planted uh, they would have a greater justification for allowing its continued use well, we can't yeah, prove that, that, but that's that seems, a possibility.
2: Yeah. I mean, we can't, you know, can't say that for sure. But in any case, yeah, it it's unfortunate. But, you know, I, I will also say that, first of all, the main culprits are clearly the companies, which should have known that, that this is an incredibly hazardous crop system. There have been warnings at, since back around 2009, 2010. Uh, we've engaged EPA from 2010, you know, warning about these dangers, and not just us, but a lot, of, you know, scientists and others, and they just ignored all of these warnings, and again, just relied on Monsanto's drug yeah. science.
0: So um, what, what happens at this point? I mean, we we've, we've got, um, you know, farmers are continuing to use dicamba, uh, the EPA has given the permission. I understand that there was uh, an attempt to, um, to stay the EPA's uh, decision on that, and that failed. Uh, so what happens next?
2: yeah yeah unfortunately we weren't able to you know um get the immediate cessation of the, the can be which is what we thought the the court's decision demanded but um yeah i mean right now we're we're going to you know document as well as we can the the damage for a fourth year it's it's unfortunate but i think after three years of harm a lot of people are a- alive to the issue and If there's any attempt to you know register these herbicides again we're going to you know be prepared and take it take it back to the court and that's you know not ideal but I think at least you know there will be some um, there'll be some damage that's averted because some of the damage has occurred in August the the the, uh, uh, EPA's decision only allows use until the end of July so it will avert, I think, some damage. Right. So but, uh,
0: what's amazing to me, I, I know, I'm, I know, Monsanto Bear uh, has deep pockets. Uh, I know they've been under the, you know, they've been the brunt of a lot of a lot of lawsuits, uh, some of which they've won, but uh, they've lost some big ones too. And uh, you mentioned the the case in uh, Missouri where I believe it was the peach farmer who won a, a suit of two hundred and sixty-five, I believe, million. And now they're I, I, what they like. I've heard that there's like over a hundred other lawsuits pending. Is it, at some point is it going to become economically uh, disadvantageous for Monsanto and Bayer to um, to continue to uh, you know fight all these court battles? And and is, is it gonna, at some point they they're going to have to just move away from these toxic options that they're like, like dividing communities and causing so much havoc because they can't afford to. In economic reality?
2: Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good question. And it's like, I, I saw the same figure about a hundred other, you know, suits pending. And then after the Bader case, the number jumped quite a bit. It's like, oh, probably a thousand now. So that wow. you know, they're facing, Bayer slash Monsanto is facing huge liabilities. And so I think it, it is possible we could stop it. And actually, I don't know if you saw this, but there was just a few days ago, they released a statement saying they were stopping the uh, nearly 1 billion dollar expansion of a dicamba manufacturing plant in Louisiana ah. and this was all designed to you know supply the anticipated demand for you know this crop system so i think that indicates that they're you know realizing hey this this yeah. is this could be you know uh, a real losing proposition. Well,
0: that 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 says volumes right there that they would put the uh, brakes on a, a planned expansion. So, um, Bill, I really want to thank you for joining us. We got to run to a break here, um, folks. have been talking with uh, Bill Freese. He's a science policy analyst with the Center for Food Safety. Uh, Bill, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me on. Ed.
0: All right, folks. When we come back, uh, we're going to be talking with Steve Horn about Governor Newsom's decision to allow. Uh, A growing number of fracking permits, even as the West fires, especially in Arizona, are really taking off and causing a lot of trouble. We'll be back in a minute, folks, on the Fallon Forum. When it's time to entertain, think of Gateway Market to handle all the details. Gateway offers a wide variety of stress-free options like cut-to-order cheese and charcuterie, a delicious olive bar, and a wide variety of chef-prepared dips and spreads or let Gateway's catering team take care of the entire event, right down to the wine and beer pairings. Gateway's expert floral designers can even customize the perfect centerpieces. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more information. Gateway Market, good food, great entertaining. Dr.
3: Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant, Well, maybe not an elephant. If you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's work history is long and deep, and her clients stick with her year after year because they know she will do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766.
0: Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Again, Ed Fallon, your host here. We are broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Later in the program, Kathy Burns with Birds and Bees Urban Farm joining us to talk about the age-old question, uh, is bigger better? Well, we 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 might decide that that's not the case. Anyway, we'll talk about that during the final segment of our show. In the meantime, I want to welcome Steve Horn to the program. Uh, Steve is a journalist um, with the Real News Network. Steve, welcome to the program.
4: Good to be on. Thanks for having me.
0: I really enjoy reading your material. It's cutting-edge stuff. It's always um, good material that you usually don't find in the mainstream media. Uh, And, you know, part of the problem is a a lot of the mainstream media have a a kind of a preferred political affiliation. We all know where Fox News stands, but, you know, a, a lot of the other affiliate a lot a lot of the other big players they don't want to they don't want to tread on too many democratic toes so there's gavin newsom who um a lot of us like and i've met gavin newsom he was here campaigning for well who knows what maybe he was thinking of running for president at one point but he was here in iowa i met him had a nice conversation but i've not been real impressed with what he's been doing when it comes to fracking and you've helped expose that
4: yeah so um I mean, a lot of people were very excited to, to kind of give the background of where my story came from. People were excited because last fall, Newsom uh, seemed like he was cracking down on, on corruption within the uh, what became known as the, the California Geologic Energy Management uh, Agency, formerly had a different name, but it, it was renamed after the scandal. Basically, the, the head of that organization named Ken Harris had over $100,000 of investments in Oxon mobile stock, and that became a big state story. Newsom cracked down on that. He fired him and kind of reshaped things within that agency, renamed it, and then also issued a moratorium on fracking beginning uh, last fall, which lasted into uh, the COVID era. But what happened is COVID happened, and he kind of quietly maybe didn't think people would notice, but of course, people did notice. We issued twenty four, so he lifted the moratorium. He issued twenty four new permits for fracking, given to a company named Era Energy, which is a 50, 50 not quite a fifty fifty, but roughly a fifty fifty joint venture between Shell and Exxon. So it's it's big oil for sure. So, so why, why, why 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 would,
0: why would he do that? I mean, the vast majority of Californians are on board with climate action, and I I would assume that the vast majority don't want to see an expansion of fracking. Correct.
4: Correct. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it depends though. And, and this, uh, I'll give two two parts to the answer. So, and, and why why did it happen, and what's the political stance on sort of the the at the, the, the state as a whole compared yeah. to this area? So, this cool. is in Kern County. Kern County is it's a mix, you could say. There's a lot of people in the, who work for the industry in Kern County, and it's uh, you could say a little bit more politically uh, red, or at least in the middle type of of place. But at the same time, it's a highly Latino community in terms of demographics and who's feeling the impacts the most of this kind of drilling and the, the air quality impacts. So that would be uh, you know, poor working class people yeah. uh, in the Latino community. But to get to the sort of like, why did it really happen? Right. right so right. The, the few dozen now, because there's been 12, another dozen that was issued were issued at the beginning of June. So it's now 36 permits given to that same company and only them. And that gets to the real part of the story, which is who was lobbying for it. The lobbyists for this were uh, a company named Axiom Advisors representing Aera Energy. And the two two of their lobbyists are former senior aides uh, to Newsom. So one of them was the head of his transition team. His name is Jason Kinney when he became governor at the end of 2018, a long-time advisor. Also the advisor right now of the Senate Democrats and the legislature. And then the other one, uh, Kevin Schmidt was his senior political basically his policy advisor when he was lieutenant governor under jerry browns so these are highly connected lobbyist types who are, or they are lobbyists registered lobbyists who were went through the revolving door to become lobbyists and formally worked for newsom so that's you know looking behind the scenes of what happened that was so e- e- even, though,
0: was. even though the vast amount of public opinion in california is on the side of opposing expanding the fossil fuel infrastructure because of these personal slash political connections that Newsom, and it sounds like also Brown, uh, Jerry Brown, have to uh, folks within the industry, they felt some obligation to uh, go ahead and issue these new permits, these 36 new permits.
4: It's not 100% clear if it was because they're his friends, but that sort of... Uh... It wouldn't be completely shocking like one other tidbit here is that Jason Kenney, I mean they're literally personal friends. So for example, uh, Jason Kenny's wife. Her, his, her name is Mary Goncalves Kine and she uh, is the literally the, the stylist for Newsom's wife. So this is a very uh, It goes beyond just like yeah. a political relationship you don't get either. much more
0: personal than that
4: <laughs> Yeah, so I mean yeah, I think that um, it shows that those connections matter and it still shows that even within green California the oil industry carries a lot of cloud. I just want to mention one other thing that's important about them. They not only represent the area for the fracking, they also represent the company Marathon Petroleum which is the biggest refiner, has the biggest refinery in the, in the West Coast in mm. the South Los Angeles County area. So that's the company that's refining a lot of that particular oil, spill. so I think it's also important.
0: So beyond beyond you calling them out in your uh, in your your column, has there been much public pushback?
4: So there, there's. It's a little early to say. I mean, okay, uh, at the time it was slightly poor. Came out on Juneteenth, so there was some reaction to it. I would say, and uh, there was a lot of you know some reaction also when uh, he issued these permits. They didn't link it to the lobbyists back then, but yeah, I would say. Broadly speaking, the climate movement within California and the environmental justice movement is upset about this. And I think that, um, you know, it comes at the same time as they're pushing for a setback of wells, which is, uh, you know, trying to to at least have a 2,500 foot space between where these oil wells are sited and communities, schools, those type of things going forward. So, you know, all of this is happening. At the same time, I expect it to be injected into the dialogue. So we're kind had of we're think. kind of just
0: getting started in terms of the public conversation and the eventual and probable public pushback.
4: Yeah, exactly. Right.
0: So what I what I don't get is I mean I mean I've I've met Jerry Brown as well. He um he was actually going to stay at my house years ago when he was campaigning for president, and some at the last minute had to change plans. But uh, you know, and I, I like both him and Gavin Gavin Newsom. They're very bright. They're very engaging. They're mo- they're very progressive, and they certainly understand the need for climate uh, action and the need to stop expanding fossil fuel projects. So, is it it it's just it disturbs me that there must that at some point there, there come these personal relationships, my wife's hairdresser in this case, that uh, <laughs> that somehow override the understanding the understanding they have of the urgency of climate change, and and somehow that becomes a higher commitment than. Than not approving any additional fracking permits because of the increased impact it's going to have on climate change,
4: I, I, I maybe yeah. maybe maybe I just need a little counsel. I don't the, know. politically speaking, yeah, just to interject real quickly. So. Also, I didn't point out before, but there's something called the Common Ground Alliance. I think it's a really important development in California. I don't know if it's happened. It's happened in other ways, maybe in less explicit ways nationally. But the common ground that's been formed is between the oil industry and some of the major labor unions. And it's, you know, it's literally like a... like a, a, like a pact that they created, a political action committee, and they, they registered and everything. So it's become a bit of a lobbying force within Sacramento and California. And that, that's a little, you know, in some ways, that's it's hard to defeat. You have labor, which has some of its own political clout and connections. Then you have the oil industry, which is sort of on the way, and you could say maybe doesn't have as much clout as in a state like Texas, but still has some in certain areas. You put that together, and that that's, um, you know, it's become definitely a force to be reckoned with in sacramento so i thought i would put that on the table
0: yeah well I, I we've had the same issue here we don't have the common ground alliance here but we certainly have had the same problem with dakota access uh energy transfer mm-hmm. partners uh lining up with the building trades um to, exactly yeah to um to build the dakota access pipeline but you know it, what, what amazes me is uh the, uh, I know a lot. Of, there's been a lot of um, focus on COVID-19, as there has to be, and a lot of focus on Black Lives Matter, which there absolutely must be. Uh, but during all this time, the impacts of climate change are continuing to become more and more evident, more and more problematic. And in the West, we um, again, this is the start of the fire season. And right now in Arizona, we have an, a massive fire uh, underway. And that's only one of many fires across the West. You would think that the Prevalence and seriousness of those blazes would begin to turn the uh, Turn the policy debate around so that it wasn't even a a question about whether a a fracking permit would be approved It would just be dismissed out of hand despite These other personal connections and despite these political alliances in this case between a big energy company and big labor But no, I I just um, yeah, I mean so but but let me just shift gears for a second from your perspective (laughs) in the West what do you see as uh, happening with uh, this fire season again being no- most notable right now in Arizona?
4: Yeah, well, you know, I think that what's really almost like striking about this whole situation just to look at the politics of it. It was only like a month ago where Newsom gave a big an hour long press conference focused on wildfire response. and he he himself said, course this is because of climate change if you want uh, an example of what climate change looks like come to california when it's safe to do so and see see what it looks like with these wildfires and you know that that's so it's like i don't you know i don't really understand how i think he sees the connection but there's still those those uh you know political forces at work that said i think that's also important to point out that what he said in that press conference and, and now we're seeing is that we don't even quite have what's Called "quote unquote" a wildfire season anymore because technically we're not even in wildfire season. Yeah, wildfire mm-hmm. season is generally thought of as between the months of August and about you know late October, maybe early November. So right. late summer into early fall. And it's already it's only June, and, and Arizona is a perfect example, right? Where they right now it's still blazing, only about fifty percent under control. Something called the bushfire, which is over one hundred eighty thousand acres in size and and still growing. a glass it grew over 10,000 Acres wow. and you know statewide it's over uh, 380,000 acres or something mm-hmm. like that. So or sorry 330,000 and that's down that's
0: in qu- that's down in southern Arizona I believe near Tucson, correct
4: um, a mix. Yeah, the the bushfire is in northeast Arizona and the Tonto National Forest wow. the one in Tucson is Yeah, that one's blazing. It's it's still huge. That mm-hmm. one is uh, over 60,000 acres in wow. total statewide It's over okay. 330,000 burning acres right now just to put that in perspective Last year in Arizona, the whole year, there was 400,000 acres total of wildfire. Right now, we're at 330. So, yeah, I think that that, you know, California, another example, uh, Cal Cal Fire, uh, the the state agency for wildfire relief and response, has tabulated. Uh, over I think 56 as of yesterday wildfires that they've responded to that does not include the ones that they did not respond to and at that same press conference Newsom was saying that we're up over 60 percent this was as of May uh, compared to last year how many wildfires there's been and like I said we're not even in wildfire season yet and just to, you know to tie that to COVID the scary part of this is that there are real air quality impacts with wildfires that we saw in Australia earlier this year. And you talk about uh, you know, that COVID is much easier to uh, contract uh, if you are living, say, in within an area that has a refinery or something. Well, if you live in an area where there's wildfires, it's the same thing. So right, sure. the, the firefighters are at risk and so are the communities around it, both because of the fires, but also because of the air quality uh, impacts of these, these uh, fires. So I think that's something to watch out for you know, yeah. looking forward.
0: Yeah, it's not. I, I'm not. I'm not um, optimistic about where fire season is going to head. And the you know, I think you may make a good point. Is we probably starting with myself, uh, should stop calling it fire season because it's uh, become such a prominent and uh, and uh, you know focal feature of life in the West. So
4: absolutely, yeah. The last, I'll put a fine point on it. So the the scholar Stephen. Pine, uh, uh, Arizona State University, he calls this era that we're living in the, the pyro scene, or kind of like the new ice age, the age of fires, if you will. That, that's sort of what we're, that's definitely what we're seeing right now in the American West.
0: Well, Steve, uh, thank you uh, so much for joining us. If folks want to um, learn more about your work, uh, keep abreast of your columns, where do they go?
4: Yeah, I would say just uh, check me out on Twitter. I'm at Steve A. Horn on there, or you can follow my weekly Climate Crisis News Roundup that
0: I do for The Real News Network,
4: and that's at therealnews.com. So
0: wrealnews.com? TheRealNews.com. No, sorry, therealnews.com. Correct. Therealnews.com. Thanks, Mm -hmm. uh, folks. We've been talking with Steve Horn. Thanks for joining us today, Steve. Thanks for uh, tuning in today, folks. And we'll have uh, more conversation for you after a short break here. Kathy Burns is going to join us. Uh, She's with Birds and Bees Urban Farm, and we're going to talk about... uh, the, uh, the 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 question that um, is always on people's mind for so many different reasons does size matter? Uh, yes, it does, and bigger is not always better. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the Lively Cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food. Great community.
1: It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa Farms and Iowa Producers.
0: back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here folks. Uh, Thanks to a couple of our business partners in the Des Moines metro for helping to make this program possible. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's my grocery store and even though the dining room is closed you can still do takeout for breakfast, lunch and supper seven days a week. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Ritual Cafe located on 13th Street. Fair trade coffee, fair trade tea and an all vegetarian menu. Again open for takeout. That's Ritual cafe all right welcome back to the program and with me now is Kathy Burns of Birds and Bees Urban Farm you know we've heard the expression um, uh, size matters (laughs) and uh, you've also heard it said that um, bigger is better well we may disagree with that and Kathy is going to kick off that conversation for us.
3: Uh, It was fascinating in September of 2019 when Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue met with dairy farmers in Wisconsin and um, not understanding the the culture of dairy farming in Wisconsin, that there are a lot of uh, smaller operators, small and medium sized operators, he said to this crowd, in America, the big get bigger and the small go out. (laughs) I don't think in America we, for any small business, have a guaranteed income. Or guaranteed profitability. So, according to Sunny Purdue, bigger is better. And as an urban farmer, I'm not a dairy farmer. Neither are you. But I, I disagree that bigger is better. Um, for instance, zucchini. You don't <clears throat> want your zucchini plant to get so big that it's tough and unusable. You want to you want to pick it just the right size so that it has the fullest flavor, the best texture. Um, what else is not better? Well, it's bigger. I
0: do like big potatoes and large tomatoes. Okay. But yeah, okra. You don't want okra to get, no. okra to get too big. No. Kidney or, or, stones. You don't want ki-
3: kidney... That's well, not, you don't want
0: them at all. It's not agriculture. But you know, industry. if you go to the state fair, which is canceled this year, by the way, um, <laughs> the, uh, you look at the vegetable prize display, and it's never the biggest vegetables that win. It's the ones with... Uh, with who can dance and sing and, uh, and perform? I, I or don't the actually. just do, color? I don't know how, I actually <laughs> don't know how they judge them, the but I know it's not on size, shit,
3: the texture. Um, yeah, I don't sort of think they don't taste the vegetables. Yeah, okay, and
0: they don't do a dancing contest either. They should. Right? They should probably. Yeah, but you know, you're right. And um, but but this this all goes back. I and mean, I, I wonder if Sonny Perdue isn't a reincarnation of Earl Butts. Uh, uh, was it, well, he was Secretary of Ag way the heck back when? And after World War, World War II, it became a mantra: get big or get out. Plant fence row to fence row, mm-hmm. you know. And and that's a that's a recipe for devastation environmentally and economically. We certainly saw the economic devastation in the nineteen eighties, and we still see it. Nineteen eighties, of course, the farm crisis was. Uh, oh, it was, it was so bad. There were farmers committing suicide left and right. You know.
3: Well, ironically, you know the get the get big or get out. Philosophy has led to more food insecurity in a lot of ways because farmers are growing lots of big, big-time crops, but not a lot of food sometimes to eat. And food insecurity is on the rise. The, uh, what Sunny Purdue said to those farmers in Wisconsin was before COVID even hit that we already had the effects of climate uh, on ag and the effects of ag on climate. But now that we're we're in the the time of of uh, COVID nineteen coronavirus in general there's a lot more food insecurity and people are a lot more interested in, in figuring out how to make sure that they they do get food that they they need uh, a group called feeding America has noted on their website just this April that ongoing the ongoing crisis could result in an estimated additional 17.1 million people it's experiencing food Insecurity. So bigger is not better. Well, of course,
0: the argument will be, well, you, you've got to, with, with, with such a large population, you've got to have industrial-scale production, and you know, and, they, and that that's been the argument since well before we ever hit, uh, you know, even seven seven point six billion people on the planet. It's been the argument for a long time. It's really an argument that favors um, consolidation, that favors uh, monopolies, um, and we we certainly have seen monopolies within. Uh, many sectors of the economy. We've seen it in the um, meat packing sector, with now Smithfield and and Tyson and, a, and just a handful of others controlling what used to be a very um, decentralized and democratic market with meat meat you know meat lockers in, in nearly every small town. But um, yeah, so it's it's an argument that has been repeated so often, people believe it, uh, and it all comes down to well, you know, economies of scale are what matter. And sure, you can probably, especially if you're getting public subsidies, which a lot of these mm-hmm. a lot of these big farms are heavily subsidized. Uh, well, we all know to what extent uh, Senator Chuck Grassley is subsidized.
3: He applied for aid a couple of years <laughs> back. Did, yeah, hey, of course well, he did because okay. he
0: was suffering. He said he, he said if,
3: When farmers, he said uh, he's a farmer too, and he said when the farmers suffer, I suffer. So we took him a fruit a food basket from our farm. Our farm, by the way, is on about an eighth an acre in. Uh, the middle of the the city here in Des Moines and interestingly when I went to establish Birds and Bees Urban Farm as a nonprofit last year as a farm uh, I was wondering if we would fit the definition and if should we establish ourselves as an official farm under USDA and so I got to looking to see what were the criteria and I even had a phone call with one of the people at the USDA because their definition of a farm and by the way our farm um, about an eighth of an acre, but we produce most of the fruits and vegetables that we eat during and a year. And all the honey plus all some, honey. and all the
0: eggs plus some,
3: and some some chicken, some plenty pastry. of chickens. Uh, and um, <laughs> and and it's it's a good deal of food. So we also teach other people to do it. Um, but uh, under USDA, the a farm is any place that produce produces and sells or normally would produce and sell at least one thousand dollars of agricultural products during a given year so i i asked this guy that i was talking to I forget his name so here's what we do do we qualify as a farm and he said well do you sell what you produce <laughs> it's all about money right? i said well no was very little of it we eat most of it because we're really good eaters he said well no if you don't sell it you're not a farm and i thought what your definition says You normally would produce and sell. Well, a lot of people normally would sell it. We just don't happen to do things very normally.
0: And we we have a lot of get. Well, until Corona hit, we have we have guests two or three, four times a week. So we're not just feeding ourselves. But you know, I I think really what it boils down to is the USDA is much more interested in dollar signs Mm -hmm. before farm commodities. Uh, they're not so interested in barter. They're not so much interested in um, in in, in self sufficiency. It's all about money. But again, according to their different definition, we do qualify. I would not be surprised, given the fact that more and more people are doing what we do or something like it, and more and more people understand that yeah, we are also a farm. I wouldn't be surprised to see a push by corporate ag. And yeah, I know you're listening to the show. <laughs> Mr. Farm Bureau, so go ahead and take this and run with it. You know, push to have the USDA change the definition of farm so that it begins to exclude a lot of the small operators like us.
3: The the philosophy, even with some people who are very encouraging of small and urban farmers, is still that you have to produce on a big scale to be qualified as a farm. We were at a, an, a climate event last year. Very good people, really neat people. And uh, they were talking about their farm. Great, great idea that they have great stuff that they do. And then we talked a little bit about what we do and the fact that we're a farm. And somebody said, oh, you mean a hobby farm. And that,
0: <laughs> that kind of stung.
3: That no, know
0: that. my hobby is um, <laughs> cribbage. You know. I beat you the other day. <laughs> I know, I let you I let you win. <laughs> you yeah, no. <laughs> I have hobbies
3: too. I love to knit. Um, I you know, I like to I like to do a lot of things. Sew and cook and right. do, do all kinds of I mean, domestic is all get out. Yeah.
0: Without. Well even, even knitting and sewing and cooking certainly aren't hobbies. If if they com- if they contribute to your survival and the basic quality of your life, I don't think that's a hobby. But you know, again there's there's a natural bias in this country based on on generations of i think misinformation generations of conditioning of social conditioning of of taking language and turning it against um, the traditional small family farmer mm-hmm. and 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 making i mean the farms that i grew up with were in ireland and uh, they were all 30 acres mm-hmm. roughly some smaller some a little bigger but all right about 30 acres they were very very equitably divided and they were um they were they were subsistence farms, but they also sold. You know, each farm would sell some some cattle. In my area, it was cattle. Further south, um, it was more often sheep. Uh, but they mostly they grew stuff that they ate. They they would they would they didn't they tended not to eat the cattle because that was their cash. That was the mm-hmm. you know here in Iowa we say that uh, the hog is the mortgage lifter. Well, in Ireland it was the beef cattle. Yep. But you know, you know, just just because farmers are raising stuff to feed themselves, there's there's nothing to denigrate about that. That's not a hobby. In many parts of the world, and in Ireland until just you know a few decades ago, that was the lifestyle. That was what it meant to be a farmer. And yet, according to people who think bigger, you know, think that we need to get bigger, get out, all that stuff would be, uh, all that type of farming would be, uh, would be, uh, you know, meaningless to them.
3: Plus, it leads to food. Insecurity. Mm-hmm. Uh, if if we have fewer producers on mega spaces, uh, and and that system has experienced fragility and collapse, uh, and there's nobody in the middle to fill a, to fill that gap, like urban farmers, like people backyard gardening. Um, we are going to see a serious and some people are already in serious food crisis so uh we've got to we've got to work on changing the expanding the concept of what a farm is and and what is a worthwhile um food production endeavor i mean for us it's a vocation it's not a hobby right it's a vocation
0: It's, it's part of how you live you know and and i would say that uh and again there's as we talked about earlier in this program the whole conflict over dicamba You've got uh, a, a major conflict going on in rural Iowa where a deadly pesticide that is un, you know uncontrollable in terms of how it drifts is destroying the farms. Uh, many people who Sonny Berdue would probably just assume leave. Because again, you know, I, I actually, I think we have Earl boss. we have Sonny Berdue. There's a guy named Tom Dore from Northern Iowa, Northwestern Iowa, and he said this uh, years ago. He was criticized for saying it by Tom Harkin. He said it while he was, I believe, the Undersecretary of Agriculture uh, for um, or for Rural Affairs uh, under George Bush. He said that his vision of agriculture for America, or in Iowa in particular, was one farm per county. Okay, so maybe that's maybe that's um, maybe that's Earl Butts's and Sonny Perdue's wet dream. I don't know, but the um, yeah, you know, but it's certainly Tom Doerr's perspective as well. One farm per county.
3: That's different than what you think of as the county farm <laughs> right. back in the day. And
0: it's hideous when you think, what? Well, can you imagine one huge farm per county? How many? Who even lives in that anymore? Well, you don't need you don't need small towns anymore. And you don't need a county they, seat anymore.
3: And how does one entity <laughs> decide what the needs are to fill that what, that county with food? Because you know, people in the northern part of the county will have different needs than people in the southern part. Well, there
0: won't be any people left in the county under Tom Door's vision. So. Mm. Yeah, get bigger, get out. I'd say get smaller, get out.
3: <laughs> well, I'd say just, you know, get some food, however is the best way you can do that. And to us, it's it's to grow it in our yard. Yeah.
0: Hey, thanks for tuning in today's program, folks. Again, thanks to Kathy Burns with Birds and Bees Urban Firm. Also, thanks to her work as uh, one of the producers of this program, along with Sherry Herdina. Thanks to the local stations around Iowa and around the country to rebroadcast this program. You can always check us out on, uh, the, on the Facebook page, this segment, the Fallon Forum Facebook page. Check out the podcast on the Fallon Forum website. Uh, and again, um, you can subscribe to the, po- the program on Apple's Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. Again, this is Ed Fallon, your host. See you next week.